Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O.com. There's only one road into Key West, but you won't believe where it can take you. Travel back in time to a city rich with history. Discover amazing artists and musicians. Taste seafood fresh off the boat. Or just kick back and soak up the island vibe. For more about Key West, visit flakeys.com. Key West, close to perfect, far from normal. Hello and welcome to That Sports Merch Podcast with myself, Lee Hyde, and my co-host, Matt Hudson. How you doing, Matt? Yeah, good, Lee. Thank you. And I hope you are as well. Obviously, the football season's well into full swing over here in the UK, so everybody's kind of getting used to that. And, and as we mentioned um, last time out, the NFL's kind of come to the UK in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, we've sort of had the best of both of us recently, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. Two London games, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium already done and dusted. Obviously, a Wembley game still to go, but yeah, it, it turns up and, and some when it turns up in the UK. I mean, from the merch perspective, the operation's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was at Tottenham Stadium uh, the week before the first of those two games, and uh, yeah, you can start to see the NFL guys starting to set up. And obviously, Tottenham Stadium has been purpose built, but even so, it's still a, a huge exercise. Uh, really impressive to kind of see it all in action and uh, I'm sure anyone who's listening into this podcast or meant to either of those two games would have been suitably well by what they saw on their visits first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, just, you know, the flip out of that store to take everything out, Tottenham Hotspur and, and Premier League and, and replace that, not only from products, but branding and, and execution digital. The whole piece is just phenomenal you know I'd, I'd like to see it in action i'd like to see a time lapse of it all happening it'd be it'd be something amazing to watch we posted some content actually on our timeline the fly through of the completed nfl store by fanatics and yeah it's quite something to behold if you can just imagine being a member of staff either having to strip that or indeed dress it again and and then you know doing it all again to put it back to tottenham um it's it's quite some operation yeah, and I think um, it's a real case in point, isn't it, of, of how the modern sports stadiums are set up to do that and to make it much easier, I guess. You know, in, in those older stores and so on, the, you know, the, the fittings would probably a bit more, be a bit more fixed, whereas these days with all the digital assets and digital screens, you know, to change the look and feel of a premises is probably a whole lot easier than perhaps it would have been in the past. Yeah, definitely. I think they lend themselves to, to that more, um, as we'll find out from, from our feature interview. But yeah, still hell of a lot of work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the one um, kind of leading that project. That leads us quite nicely onto um, our feature interview this week. We talked to 
uh, Nick Lodge from Onside Brand. So Nick has plenty to discuss with us about historical club stores, how they kind of came from what they did to where they are now. And, and a whole lot in between. Uh, recalls some tales around some of the favourite projects that he's worked on in his Adidas days, which is fascinating, and and takes us forward with a look at what a physical space and a digital future can look like and how important that mix and contrast between the two is. Really interesting listen. And I think for me, Lee, what was fascinating as well is that expectations have changed so dramatically over the last sort of 10, 20 years. Your expectations from brands, expectations from the, the clubs and the stadiums themselves, and ultimately expectations from, from those that are using the stores and going in and actually purchasing the products. And, and that puts a whole lot of pressure on, on people like Nick and kind of the people who work around him to, to deliver some real high-class experiences for people. It's not just a case now popping in and getting your program or getting your shirt. It's a whole lot, lot more than that, as a kind of Nick explained during the course of that interview. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of science that goes into it nowadays. Um, it's more than just people walking through the door, picking up a quick thing and, and, and out again. You know, it's, it's all tailored towards that experience and that dwell time in store, increasing the spend, fan engagement, social sharing. There's, there's so much in this feature interview. Definitely. And I think what was really important probably to, to note at this point is that, yeah, the clubs like Tottenham, who've spent quite a lot on their stadium and the other Premier League clubs who've got the resources and budget can do these things. But but equally, there's some very achievable victories for some of the, the smaller clubs as well to make sure that you know, they're, they're, they're squeezing what they can and making sure they can kind of make their club sustainable in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Without further ado, let's jump straight in. So, Nick, thanks for joining us on uh, That Sports Much podcast. Some really interesting content that we're going to go through and something that I'm really keen to get into as you cover a lot of bases in terms of previous experience, but also the bits that you're on to talk about with us on today's show. Um, perhaps start by just running through your backstory and how you come to find yourself in your current role. How did you kind of get to, to what you do now and what, you know, what does that current role cover in terms of, um, onside? Of course. Well, thank you, uh, Lee, Matt, for having me. Uh, really looking forward to uh, this chat. Uh, hopefully it'll be insightful and uh, we'll talk about some uh, interesting topics. So yeah, thank you for having us. Um, my background, um, I could talk for a while. So I might just go back to 2000 um, when I was working for Gap. So um, big global sort of mid-market fashion brand. Learned a lot there from uh, regarding brand delivery and uh, point of sale and retail environments. Uh, left Gap, moved over to JD. JD at that point was just UK based. My role at JD meant I worked very closely with a lot of the brands and creating the branded spaces for say Adidas Nike, as you'd expect, or Lacoste, Fred Perry. Uh, one of my favorite ones was a very small space we did for Hummel in 2006, um, which is a real cute space that was influenced by uh, a Hummel branded space in, in Tokyo. After JD, uh, I even had a time with Mamas and Papas as head of VM, um, which was an interesting year before returning back to the JD group to head up VM for uh, Bank Fashion. And then, yeah, left left um, the JD group and went into an employed consultancy role um, with a, a consultancy firm. And that was uh, great. Um, I worked closely on projects for clients such as IKEA, O2, uh, Sainsbury's, uh, Wilco, 
you know, a lot of high street brands, but also a lot of global, global brands, big brands, helping them with retail policy development and implementation. Then I left to join um, a brand of my dreams, which is Adidas, boyhood Adidas fan, probably because of my love for Manchester United and their amazing football kits from the 80s, but um, joined Adidas as head of branded space projects. And my first project was for Manchester United. And everybody I've ever spoken to who's new to PM project management, you want to get stuck into a, a really good project pretty quickly, you know, really, you know, get your head under the hood, take a look around, make those relationships, uh, understand the timing and the objectives and um, get on board, get into the business with a fantastic project. So um, joining Adidas and then to be handed Manchester United was um, was a dream come true in many ways. I left Adidas a couple of years ago to set up my own consultancy, Onside. So uh, Onside are a brand consultancy. Previously to Adidas, as I said, I was a consultant. So uh, I know a thing or two about brand delivery and uh, retail policy and brand strategy. Onside specialise in brand strategy, brand insights, marketplace insights. Um, We work with B2B brands. Uh, We also work with uh, clubs, football clubs. So the name Onside was, uh, I wanted to have a name that had a bit of a football flavour. And um, in the last couple of years, since VAR's come along, Onside is probably one of the most used uh, on-screen graphics (laughs) um, as part of VAR. Every time I see Onside come up at the bottom of the VAR screen, I think, yeah, I chose the right name there. So I wanted a name that still resonated and connected to football and sports in particular, but also yeah, my specialism um, sees me working with retailers, new innovative retailers, B2B manufacturers, tech brands, printed companies, um, you name it. So um, Onside are um, busy. Launching in the middle of a pandemic was a real challenge, but the last 12 to 18 months have been fantastic. Um, it's also been great to work with football clubs as well, continuing conversations with uh, previous contacts uh, during my time at uh, Adidas. Thank you for that, Nick. Really insightful in terms of background. I mean, VAR is probably helping you out with your SEO immensely <laughs> at the minute. Great, great name yeah. in Onside. Can definitely see yeah. the, the benefits there to having that name. Um, you've worked with yeah. some pretty sizable brands there, you know, just to just mention in a few, certainly within the physical retail scene. Adidas, obviously, in terms of what we do here at Sports Merch Podcast, stands out as, as one of the giants um, that you've worked with. Can you take me through what your role kind of looked after there and what the responsibilities were with it and how that worked and dovetailed with pro sports clubs in terms of their physical store portfolios and and brand executions? Yes, of course. So uh, the role was uh, UK-based, UK marketplace. Um, It was uh, focused on the wholesale business. So it wasn't Adidas direct to consumer. Um, it was about wholesale key accounts. So on a broad level, that would be dealing with, say, Harrods or Runners Need. Um, it was it wasn't dealing with JD or Sports Direct because those were, they, they were actually managed by a different market. But we were dealing with key accounts, uh, key wholesale accounts, and with that came commercial clubs. And the uh, and Adidas had its own dedicated uh, commercial clubs team that would deal directly with the uh, all the UK commercial clubs and also handle the local market management of elite clubs. So Manchester United coming on board in 2015 was uh, about as elite as it got. But my role there at Adidas was about making sure that the brand showed up at the point of sale, as I said, whether it was Harrods or Runners Need or, say, Manchester United, with 
make real bold, consistent impact, you know, based on uh, a toolkit that was prescribed to us from Adidas Global, but then looking at execution based on the type of retail space, um, the retail format, whether it was premium, whether it was specialist sports, or whether it was a pro club. So uh, I had a team, uh, a couple of P project managers, but I also had um, a team that would manage a business model. So in some of the key spaces, uh, we'd also implement and manage a, um, a business model, what we called like a premium sort of branded space. Um, I won't go into that now in too much detail. But what was really exciting were the branded space projects that we were able to um, implement across all the customer types, but specifically with, with the clubs. So typically, um, where there's an elite club has been signed at Adidas, you might have a nine month or maybe a, even a year lead time from the date in which that kit partnership contract goes to market in terms of its launch and you know, presents itself to the fans. So I always valued those lead times because um, you can do a hell of a lot in a year if you've got a good budget. Um, you can do um, a hell of a lot in a year if you've got an an okay budget. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was jump on projects without enough time to really properly develop them. So as you said before, there was quite a lot of consultancy required, you know, a lot of time sitting with the clubs, making the introductions, understanding what the clubs wanted, what the clubs were happy with yeah, sure. in their, of their current space, but then what they wanted it to be. A lot of the clubs would have real clear ideas of how they wanted to spend the Adidas contribution, which in some cases can be relatively modest, or where it's an elite club could be really significant capex investment and would create opportunity to do something really transformative. So as I said, the clubs see those budgets detailed in contracts and go, oh, can't wait to spend that. But it was my job to make sure that it was spent, but it was spent in the right way. So to create the right retail environment, the right aesthetic, where we need to do anything bespoke, it was always done the right way. It was always signed off by Global if it needed to be. Um, and if there are any specific enhancements we wanted to make, or if there's anything that the club wanted to co-fund, uh, we could essentially grow the size of the budget and um, and uh, deliver something that is um, big, bold and brilliant. In some cases, clubs came to us with you know that some you know in a, in a really poor state, and um, we had to start with them. You know, fairly uh, yeah yeah we we had to be quite clever in terms of how we engage with them. You know, because we didn't want to offend anybody by telling them how dire their space was, but we wanted to make sure that they see the opportunity of a the Adidas contract coming on board. You know, the, the expected sell through the excitement from the fans and creating a retail space that's going to really motivate, engage and excite the fan, you know, and then that always leads to additional purchases, repeat purchases, whether it's, you know, um, kit partner merch or licensed merch. So, yeah, it, it was um, a really interesting uh, start point, you know, whether it was a, a small project with, say, Cardiff City or with Arsenal or Celtic or Manchester United, each one, we approached it in the same way. The only things that were different normally was just the size of the budget and the opportunity. Sure. Really interesting, Nick, because something completely new for me in terms of what, what's involved. So yeah, this is really kind of fascinating already. Um, did you kind of see a, a different challenge at each of those parent clubs in terms of how invested they were with the brand and, and kind of guess how their desires perhaps differed from what the brand was looking to achieve and obviously that must be an interesting challenge um so how did you kind of manage those challenges as you went along yeah i think um some clubs were really honest and would say we really need your help you know and as soon as you get that out of the first meeting 
And, you know, they sort of know that the expectation is to spend a budget or co-fund a budget and spend it in the best possible way. And that's great. You know, from meeting one, you know, right, we can sort of take the lead commercially, creatively. We can work with them operationally because the guys who run these retail spaces are experts in stadium retail and all the operational challenges of match day, non-match day, you know, just managing that footfall and converting it. So um, that was great. Sometimes we came across some clubs who were very protective of their environments. Um, and again, I'll probably say this a few times, I won't mention certain clubs <laughs> because uh, it might shine a light on uh, individuals, but certain clubs would be really protective and already had a real clear plan of how, how a budget was to be spent. So it was up to me to then manage that process. You know, if we need to go to tender with, say, a design agency, um, say three, to sort of pitch for a creative concept, which can then help influence the, the, the club into coming over to our way of thinking and actually thinking, right, Adidas are the experts. We want them to, you know, lead us, but Adidas will take us through the whole sign off process. So as I mentioned, you know, high level of diplomacy was, was required because when you have a space that's as important as a, um, a, a mega store or a club shop where it, you know, the turnover is high from a revenue perspective is really important. So quite regularly, we'd have um, even C- CEO level people uh, around the boardroom table talking about what the objective was, what we wanted to achieve, what their expectations were, which is great because as I said, we would try and do that about nine months before everything was to go live. So we were able just to go through a whole sort of process of evaluating ideas, talking about ways of working, highlighting potential issues. And one of those was, you know, we, we did have some projects that came to us in April. Um, and I, I can mention one, one club, uh, Cardiff City in 2015 came to us in April. And the, the, the brief was, we want to completely gut our shop. And we, but we want it to be done for July the 1st. So to go from just not even having an idea that the project was on the radar in April to then physically delivering it for July the 1st, you know, one of my first questions was, well, there's going to be a lot of expectations that need to be controlled here because of the lead time. There's certain things we might not be able to source or produce or afford because of the essentially two and a half months. Yeah. But what was great there is the, 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 the club. The commercial uh, guy, I forget his name. Um, I seem to remember uh, Ken Chu was in the the meeting. I think he was the chief exec. Had so much like uh, motivation for the, a the partnership, impending partnership, and they knew the commercial reward of having an Adidas badge on the kit. You know, in terms of fa- resonating with the fan and the fan wanting Adidas merch apparel. You know, um, anything. They were really supportive. You know, we had to be fast on that one. We had to tell them you're in a pretty bad shape. You know, we we would we recommend you co-funding it to a high level, um, which is what they did. And I think the results speak for themselves. I can't remember now uh, what they did on day one of kit launch. And Lee, you'll know at Portman Road. You know, whenever there's a kit launch, there's always a big queue. There's pre pre-orders. You know, there's so much buzz and excitement because people want to get their hands on on the shirt but in in um, in Cardiff it was on another level you know so we were able to do it but we were able to do it because we had to tell the club this is what you need to do this is when we need to get it signed off these are our recommendations and we we we, we did my agency owned it in every aspect of it from flooring decoration ceiling lighting we didn't pay for that from an Adidas perspective but we advised them that you need to do this 
or otherwise the Adidas space is, is stick out like a sore thumb. So they instantly thought, right, we do need to invest. So I think the investment level was 50-50, maybe might have been 60-40 on their side because they recognised the fact that for them to move with the times, I can't remember, I think they were championship and then I think they moved up into the Prem the year after. They they need, they knew they needed to seriously invest in their retail space. So that I've always spoken about that one as being a real challenge for many reasons, but the results were fantastic. And the uh, local market agency that we used handled the project with so much respect and care based on what Adidas wanted. But they also really delivered a very strong creative aesthetic that really brought the personality and the heritage of Cardiff City to the fore, which was great. Yeah, definitely. I can understand how difficult some of those conversations must have been when it was, you know, almost pushing back on the club and asking for that funding to be matched or just the timescales of the Cardiff project alone is just, you know, from, from being on that side of the fence and, and understanding yeah. what happens during that period. Yeah, that fills me with a bit of fear. Congratulations. Yeah. Like. <laughs> it was great, you yeah. know, and I've, you know, I've still, I keep case studies and I keep creative decks in terms of the decks that we would have presented to the club. I yeah. keep them because I like to keep like a record of projects I've worked on. Yeah, and I think I must have dug that Cardiff one out a few times over the years and just spoken to people about it and just shown them. Don't show too many people. They'll, they'll all be expecting a two and a half month turnaround. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to do that again. In, in terms of the store designs, Nick, and, yeah. and specifically customer experiences, have, have they changed or did they change over your period with Adidas? Was there an obvious shift to what we see now, which is a much more experiential, you know, fan experience with, with, within a, a sports store or, or was it more gradual as it kind of just stepped year on year on year or other cer- yeah. certain projects that maybe stick out where you think, yeah, they were laying down a marker in the sand pretty early with, with that kind of experiential stuff. Yeah, there were definitely some clubs that, you know, took the first steps and, and, and went towards that experiential um, sort of enhanced um, stadium environment. But but what I would say is, even before my time at Adidas, probably about 10 years ago, the, spa- the club shop spaces were just, they just, some of them looked, and I, I've said this a few times, they looked like a Clinton cards. You know, there was, you know, nylon carpeted floors. There was, you know, um, laminated wood slat wall, suspended ceiling, really poor sort of um, VM. You know, they, they were just functional spaces. There was nothing in there that made you want to visit and excite you. So I would say 10 years ago or going back seven years to um, the Manchester United project is clubs consistently, all, what they all wanted was a refresh from a fixtures and fittings perspective they wanted new mannequins they wanted mid new midfloor unitary they wanted perimeter unitary that was branded by the their kit partner it's bold it's functional they wanted graphics um but then the rest of the shop would look pretty disjointed because you know the rest of the shop was you know promoting um baby grows and duvet sets etc but as i said presented in a sort of this weird sort of clinton cards type (laughs) way so yeah so i'd say about Seven years ago, clubs actually just wanted branded spaces. And then what probably happened is digital became more affordable, but also at the same time, the clubs were really really establishing a very strong tone of voice through social media. So they were doing, they weren't just, you know, sharing images and bit of copy on Twitter or what have you. And Instagram 
wasn't really anywhere near what it is now. So they started creating more big, bigger, bolder, um, creative. And then you're able to use that creative to feed through into social media, through to the you know, landing page of the website, through to YouTube, etc. And a great way to bring that to life in a physical retail space is through digital screens. So it could be, you know, almost shop bought LCD screens, you know, portrait or landscape mounted to a wall. And it's just got a media player that plays the kit launch film. Yeah, that's probably what it was about seven years ago. You know, it became more affordable. But then when, you know, video walls became more affordable and cloud-based content management systems become more affordable and prevalent, or even LED walls, um, clubs started to look at bringing digital in, but they wanted to do it with purpose and impact and on a scale. So, um, and then at the same time as that, clubs also wanted to create their own retail identity. So they would start to push back on, oh, we don't want an Adidas space, but we want this or we want that. So I think, uh, I think I've mentioned before is that, you know, seven years ago, you would look at a project budget and you might spend five or 10% on digital, but go forward a couple of years, that percentage of budget might have gone up to 25 to 30%. And then a couple of years later, you know, for example, in 2019, when we um, worked on the Arsenal project, I would say about 75% of that project was spent on big digital. And I'm not sure if you've been to the Emirates Armoury. Um, it was probably one of the biggest and best projects that me and my team have worked on because not one bit of it, other than mannequins, was standard. Everything was bespoke. Everything was working with the club. It was about trying to introduce an aesthetic that was appropriate to the club, but also appropriate to Adidas. But yeah, we spent quite a bit of money on big digital, digital in the windows. We had, I think it was 30 foot high LED screens, you know, massive, you know, about the size of a London bus in a couple of locations in there. And what we had then was an appraisal from the club, but also an appraisal from, you know, my seniors at Adidas locally or in Germany. When they see the big, bright, bold digital, they almost everybody instantly just goes, Oh, that looks amazing. Great job. You know, and the most important thing with digital, whether it's a you know, 55 inch screen or a 30 foot high video wall or LED wall is content. You know, and we work really closely with with Arsenal in particular to 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 define a, a creative content plan that was going to be really engaging and exciting. Um, we didn't want it to be aged or um, you know look like wallpaper. We wanted it to be real dynamic content. So yeah, it, the shifts have changed, and I think the clubs. Um, and I'd just go back to one question, uh, the first question. Um, I'd say personally, and it was quite hard for me to sort of accept this at the time when Chelsea came out of their Adidas contract in 2016 and we'd only recently invested a significant amount of money um, at Stamford Bridge about a year earlier and then the contracts Nike Chelsea bought themselves out of the Adidas contract and then they went down the, um, the the Nike route what we created at Stamford Bridge just a year earlier was fantastic you know real in- innovative um, retail design we worked really closely with the German firm called Schwitzka to um, sort of harmonize the aesthetic and really help define the new Adidas space but a year later or it might have been 18 months later the Chelsea the whole of Stamford Bridge space was re-skinned and it wasn't, oh, now it's just Nike fixtures and fittings. The whole aesthetic was revisited from ground floor to first floor. Yeah. And what Nike are really good at is creating like hyper-personalized uh, decorative elements. 
and lighting elements that really create a, such a strong club personality. Now, I wouldn't say the Stamford Bridge Megastore Club Shop is the best, but I think that shift from almost a departmentalised, here's the Chelsea space and here's the Adidas space, was completely sort of um, removed. And it was, here's the Chelsea space with with Nike mm. sort of playing their part. And they were playing their part on the ground yeah. floor, on the first floor. You know, they, they paid, you know, they tipped their hat towards like the heritage. And there was just so much good stuff. And I think Chelsea did such a good job there of working with Nike to, to, to rebirth their club shop that they'd only sort of redone 18 months earlier. So I think, think that for me yeah. was... Um, was a real change of intent, and I think a lot of other clubs followed that. Nick, it's, it's clear to hear that you've got a very broad portfolio with some incredible success stories along the way, but if you were to pick one favourite brand of space activation during your time of Adidas, oh, yeah. just one, what yeah. would it be? Yeah, easy. So um, the first project, um, they switched from uh, Nike to Adidas for Manchester United in 2015. Um, I think we had a seven-month lead time on that, and um, it was almost too big to fail because there was um, a high level of importance given to this um, contract. Uh, you know, it made headline news because of the value of the contract over the ten-year period. You know, it was big business, and um, for me to sort of be um, responsible for delivering a part of that, because obviously there's a full sort of brand team that managed every every other element of transition, but. To have that responsibility of you know um, switching the uh, what was a Nike retail space at Old Trafford, it was operated by Nike. To then for it to become a Manchester United retail space with Adidas as the key brand partner, you know that was a great opportunity for for me as a as a big Adidas fan, but also a, probably a bigger Manchester United fan. Um, so yeah, the project was too big to fail. Um, it had all the big guns in global, um, and you know, some real, you know, top level creative agencies working on, um, creative concepts and layout. And, you know, we were looking, everything was in scope in terms of what we wanted to achieve. The biggest challenge with that project was, uh, the sitting tenant, which was Nike. And we only had a week to physically bring the project to life and, you know, wow. Um, you know, from a structural perspective. So, you know, I think it was the 26th of July, Nike formally vacated. And then on the 1st of August, it, we then we opened with a fully Adidas Manchester United uh, shop. Did you leave? <laughs> did, did you ever go home on those five days? <laughs> yeah. No, it was because we'd planned and prepared. We had, you know, we had, we had a team of head office um, Man United fans yeah, and Adidas's head offices in Stockport. They all volunteered because they wanted to be part of it. You know, we had you know, and senior people were in that. So the camaraderie was great that week. The um, the principal contractor on the project and um, PM and I'll, I'll mention him because we've got a good relationship. Was a guy called Rob Jameson and he did a fantastic job from a PM perspective. A real masterclass. Um, there were some real significant issues with that project in the final three weeks. But you wouldn't know because my manner and approach to that type of thing is right. Here's the problem. This is how we can or should um, solve it. I need to speak to the people who can or should be able to solve it, give them an opportunity to solve that problem. And if they can't, that's when you blow the whistle and you say, there's a problem here. It's at risk. Or if they say we can do it, you just carry on, you know. So yeah, I did go home. I um, in that same week we were also doing Stamford Bridge 
Um, so just, that was a, just a small that was job alongside one. it. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing. But those sort of things when they come along, and you know, you two would have ex- you know experienced projects or things that you and your team have had to deliver in the past. And when it when it's planned in the level of detail that it needs to be planned. And you've also got what I, I always call like a back pocket strategy. So if something goes wrong, we have to revert to this. You know, and it might be a temporary measure or it might be, you know, um, uh, uh, an alternative solution. But when you get a team internally, externally, you're working together, you know, no matter the problem, you can, you can get through it. You know, I always say, as long as you've got enough skills, time and resource, you can get the project done. If you haven't got the skills, you need more time and resource. If you haven't got the resource, you need more time or skills. You know, it's all, it's almost like a paradigm of project delivery. You know, you, as long as you've got skills, time and resource, you can get it done. And there, I think the results spoke, spoke for themselves, really. We were really pleased with it. It was a very, very tough final few weeks. Um, but, you know, as I said, nobody knew about that until after the project was delivered. And then that's when we had to address certain issues that were out of our control. That leads quite nicely onto to what I was going to ask next, actually, Nick. How about yeah. times where things didn't go to plan? Obviously, you've, you've alluded to, to a few there potentially <laughs> on that project. Have you ever gone as far as creating something different to the plan that's just yeah. not worked out how, you, how you'd have liked it, but obviously you're up against a tight deadline and you have to deliver? Yeah. Have you been in that position? It sounds like you perhaps were on the Man United project. Yeah, as I said, you know, it's one of those projects that is an immovable object in terms of the deadline. You know, we couldn't just, you know, squeak it, you know, move it on by a day. It had to be done for a certain time. Um, and it was too big to fail, you know, and you can carry that as a burden or you can use it to actually really sort of motivate and invigorate you and your team. So as I said, I think I've made it clear that, you know, I really like to plan ahead and try and foresee as many issues as possible. You know, one of the issues with uh, Manchester United was there was a really big requirement to keep the look and feel of the kit top secret. Sure. You know, and if there was any sort of suggestion that they, it was leaked by anybody through Adidas or anybody through Manchester United, you know, it, it could have been a really big, big issue for the outgoing kit um, partner. Um, so we had to do some crazy stuff to make sure that we didn't leak that so um and i'll answer this question in two parts part one was manchester united megastore big space you have to fill it with a high level of kit yeah high volume of kit pre-printed kit you know and the full range because the footfall the demand you know the consumer will just go through it like a plague of locusts so you needed such a high volume of pre-printed product or product ready um ready to go to the point that, you know, three weeks before we even brought stock into the shop, it was all being pre-retailed underground at Old Trafford in an, a, an area of the concourse by a, one of the refreshment desks. All being pre-retailed, hung, bugged, security tagged, size cubed even. Um, we had, we did it over a three week period and the Manchester United team did a fantastic job of uh, making sure that it was a secure space. You know, phones had to be handed in and put in lockers. Nobody was allowed to work in the space. Everybody was patted down. Any area where, you know, and this is when the stadium tour was operational as well. So, you know, we it, it had to be like a sterile space. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and then the second one was there was a human error about, well, it would have been months before the deadline. Um, and I won't, I, said, I won't mention companies' name and I won't mo- mention individuals' names, but I had a phone call three weeks before 
people were due to be on site to start ripping out and f- installing kit. To be told, none of the kit has been manufactured. It wasn't forecasted, but it was on our side, but the, the forecast didn't go through to production, which, as I said before, you know, that was my alarm bell. It was private information to me. I had to then give that company 24 hours to say, you need to scramble your troops you know, and come up with a solution within 24 hours to tell me how you're actually going to make it happen. And credit to them, they did a, a bloody brilliant job. You know, I, I remember being in a one of the meeting rooms at Adidas in Stockport on a five-hour conference call with people from all over Europe, um, manufacturing and from this from this firm, going through every single element of a, of a drawing deck to say, right, this is this. How's it made? Do you want this? Do you still want this? Literally going through everything. And then, and, and that was exhausting, but it was a necessary evil to make sure that it stayed on track. So not one physical fixture or brand sign or anything was actually manufactured until, um, until three weeks before. And then because of the tight lead times and everything was coming from an Eastern European country, we got it freighted over. Um, we paid, well, we didn't pay. The firm paid to have two delivery drivers in each cabin so that they didn't have to stop for taco breaks or sleeping breaks. It carried on right the way through to Calais, can come through the tunnel you know, without stopping because the other driver was sleeping whilst the other one was driving. That's the level of detail that, you know, I considered that's the level of detail that my, um, the firm who were responsible for shop fitting and uh, manufacture, the level of detail they put on it. And as I said, it was too big to fail, you know, so it, it got through. And only after the fact, as in after all the whole, you know, clap hands, it's all done, well done. I then had to unpick that issue and say, and make sure that, you know, the, the, the challenge and the burden and the stress and the worry was somehow compensated. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Incredible story. Amazing what can happen when you're up against a deadline as well. So, yeah, Nick, I think you've kind of potentially touched on this a little bit earlier in, in our conversation, but, you know, obviously uh, sports clubs and brands, what do you think they want to create with their spaces now? Is it that more showroom feel? We've mentioned about the shift to digital. Do you think... Uh, they're really in, in, interested in those special moments and lasting memories of so things that are a bit more kind of social media friendly in terms of what they can share with them. Um, you know, supporters can share with their friends and followers and stuff as well. Do you think it's kind of headed more in that direction? Yeah, 100%. You know, in the last few years, I think being a football fan has become cooler. It's trendier. And I think, you know, social media is a big part of that because fans feel closer to their club because of the content. They feel closer to the players. Um, but, their expectations now when they go to a match, whether it's one match a season or if they go every week, you know, home and away, they want to feel close to the club and they want to experience something that is really rewarding, really engaging, create those times and those moments that they get excited about, you know. So from a club shop perspective, you know, shops, club shops are getting bigger um, for the right reasons because yeah, they still need to um, yeah, present a high volume of the licensed goods or the um, kit partner apparel, but they, they need to, the spaces need to breathe because they want to have, you know, good enough footfall in there. They want to have enough tills to convert. Um, they want to have a product range, a merch range that is best in class, innovative uh, products, you know, licensed products. Personalization is really big, but they want to create a retail space stadium retail space that create those moments where they can have a selfie they can you know um sit off and watch a digital screen that is playing you know their top 100 classic goals or you know 
and you know club heritage and history. So club shops are getting bigger. They're using the spaces better. They're activating the spaces better. They're starting to put more of the club personality into the space. So as I said before, you know, a kit partner might change every three years. Um, it might change every you know two years. You know, two years potentially. So the kit partner in a lot of cases is quite sort of transient. You know, there's a, a um, you know they don't want to have to redo everything every time they switch kit partner. So the, uh, the spaces are becoming more um, focused towards the club, the heritage, um, the pride, the passion. And then with that, the, the spending the money on digital and then the content that's within that digital. Or there's a lot more you know, physical spaces that could be classed as, say, a selfie space, a photo point. There might be, you know, even clubs are using green screens so that you can map yourself into um, environments with the players, etc. So... You know, there's certain certain um, clubs out there or or stadiums who are doing such a good job of placemaking. You know, creating spaces where the fan, no matter what their spending power is, they're able to get to the stadium earlier. They get to interact, engage with, you know, the hospitality spaces or uh, engagement spaces. Make that purchase in the club shop. Or, you know, as I said, they're a hospitality guest and, you know, they're not going anywhere near the sort of food and beverage spaces or the club shop, but they're engaged, they're in the hospitality space or corporate box, but they still want to be able to, you know, interact with the same content that fans downstairs with a burger and a Coke in their hands are, are doing. You know, they still want to take a, you know, a, a purchase away with them as a, as a, as a memento. So, yeah, I, th- I think clubs are realizing the value of their retail spaces. Um, if you look at, say, somewhere like Tottenham's club shop, you know, there's expansive space in there. There's a, um, like an auditorium and a big video wall that plays sort of content, community content. It plays highlights. It plays kit launch. It plays, you know, real personalized content. But one of the, the last big projects I did for Adidas, um, at Arsenal, we, we, we ended up doing an augmented reality. Um, experience uh, in the club shop and to for us to activate that we had to film Ertzel, Mesut Ertzel on a green screen uh, Maitland Niles um, forget the other player now unfortunately and then we took them out of that green screen environment and put them in this, the club shop environment and we created this whole sort of um, skill zone you know and that was such a big hit from you know day one that it wasn't just about retail it wasn't just about conversion it was about creating moments that the fan can only have in that stadium retail space and uh, we created some more physical spaces uh, we had this bleacher we had a you know a, an authentic cannon which the club had suspended in the ceiling we brought it down to be like a key photo point and doing these sort of things because we we know that the fan wants to feel part of of that club space and that that Little moments like that, it gives that fan something to share on social media or a memento that they can just look back at over the years. Absolutely. I think that's definitely what it's more about and more moving towards, certainly from what I see when I'm out and about. We've obviously spoken about quite an array of elite clubs, big spaces, big budgets. Yeah. Thinking about the the complete contrast, clubs without a capex, clubs with, you know, right at the the bottom of the pyramid potentially wanting to, you know, rebirth retail, reinvigorate retail, or, or just get retail going in a different direction. Maybe somebody new's taken on a, a business unit that, you know, is has been failing, but there really is no money yep. to spend. I mean, I know when I started at Colchester, my, my first role, 
the budgets there yeah. were extremely tight and, and Matt will know this as well with, with his experience there. There certainly wasn't capex to go spend in, in, in terms of retail. What, what can those, yeah. and, and I'm hoping that a lot of listeners at smaller clubs and, you know, sports across the globe that listen can maybe take something from this, but what, what can those guys do that isn't necessarily a massive financial investment? Are there quick wins? You mentioned there about creating selfie points and, you know, just really yeah. easy engagement opportunities. What, what can those clubs with, with literally nothing, no, you know, nothing to spend? What, yeah. what could they do? Yeah. I, th- I think, um, one of the most basic sort of objectives for retail is that your retail space has to be neat, clean, tidy, you know, and, you know, and then you look at, um, any decorative features, you know, whether that's, you know, wall coverings or light boxes or light, you know, lighting. So I think fundamentally creating a retail space that is really like appealing, whether it's at the stadium or whether it's, uh, you know, in a, in a mall, you know, a retail space that, you know, it doesn't look like it's being bought from a shop fittings company, you know, creating an aesthetic that works. But one thing I really appreciate, and I see it a lot on Twitter, is when you do see some of the lower league clubs, and they've got really high quality social media content, you know, whenever there's a goal scored, you know, you'll see a little flash up of a Twitter and there'll be a player sort of in the club kit with a graphicized dynamic background, you know, and some motion graphics coming up saying goal. And it's, that's the type of thing that you want to try and replicate that sort of energy and dynamism at the stadium venue, you know. So therefore, digital tools, not just in the club shop, but in use through the stadium, you know, um, in areas where there could be high level of engagement, you know, and and some of these digital spaces, you can, you know, they can generate ad revenue because they're digital out of home. They're outside of the stadium, you know, planning permission is required, but obviously, the content that's on the screen could be very valuable to local businesses or to, to brands. Um, so I think that could be really interesting, but obviously, um, digital has the perception of being expensive. Um, I'm currently working on a, a stadium retail strategy with a, with a tech brand, um, specifically targeting, you know, major sporting clubs, but you know, with solutions that are appropriate for, you know, championship league one, league two level, you know, so. Um, it's about not just thinking about retail happens you know, on an e-com app or an e-com site and in the club shop. It's about engagement and excitement and, yeah. you know, and using digital spaces to potentially extend the space of your club shop on match day. So, you know, take a Premier League or Championship level club. You might have 30,000 uh, home fans in and around that stadium. You might have 60,000 in and around that stadium. But if the club shop's on the other side of the stadium, again, whether you're a, you know, big or small, you know, League Two team, is that fan going to go across the other side of the stadium to have a browse? And if they do, are they going to make a purchase? Or are there more convenient ways for them to, to make a purchase? Can they make a purchase on their app and go and pick up their purchase from the locker, you know, um, that's situated outside the stand that they're sat in? You know, and obviously there'd need to be a human resource to, to operate and facilitate that type of purchase channel. Yeah. But um, I think what it would do is extend the retail space and it allows a club to cater for 20,000 fans who aren't coming anywhere near the club shop. So to answer your question, I'd say a lot of lower league clubs are doing a fantastic job on social media and the, the digital content that they're pushing out through social channels. 
if they can bring that type of personality into the stadium environment, not just in the club shop, but in the environment, and then start to think about digital as interactive medium. It's not all about going out from the club to the fan. Is there a way, and there is, because um, the firm I'm working with at the minute, you can make it interactive. You can get, you know, the fans can share their photos onto a big screen. They can, you know, they can pose in front of a camera and do a, a digital selfie moment. Some of these might not generate revenue, but what they will generate is passion and, you know, connection. And I think it's fair to say some of those smaller clubs are often the most innovative and, and, and agile in terms of trying some of these things as well. So, yeah. yeah, there's definitely opportunity for those guys to adopt things in the future. Obviously, a, a load has changed in the last five to seven years, and we've kind of spoken about the, the evolution of digital, but kind of looking ahead to the next three to five years, what do you think is kind of coming down the track in that sense? Uh, what do you think physical retail within pro sports environments might look like? And do you think there's still further evolutions of digital to come with, with the rate of change that's happening in that environment? Yeah, I think I think the, the biggest change will be they'll become more experiential. The physical spaces will become bigger. You know, you only have to look at, I think it was last week, uh, Leicester City have announced an expansion to the King Power Stadium to increase capacity, I think, by about 11,000, which is footfall. But also as part of that plan, there's a hotel on site and what looks like a satellite, like an external megastore. That's the type of opportunity that clubs can create for themselves to think, right, we don't just want to have, you know, three tier merchandising and high volume fixes and fittings. We want to create a really experiential space that the fan um, will want to come to every match day or you know, is it a way for the um, the corporate guest or the more the guest who's in more premium seating to have more of a elevated retail experience? So maybe they're actually purchasing higher value goods. You know, they might um, you know, and using digital tools to help convey sort of passion and excitement. So I, I think the space will become bigger, more experiential, because it's highly important for 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 clubs to capitalise on the match day footfall. You know, in retail, you know, Saturdays are always busy, but you can't guarantee football to your shop on a high street. But as a football team, you know, we're going to have 40,000 people visiting and we can't expect them all to come into our club shop here. We need a biggish club shop or we need a secondary retail space that could be digitally driven at the other side of the stadium. And then outside of football, you know, looking at sports in North America, you know, state college football, NFL. They get sports merch and they know how to do high volume. They also know how to do um, experience. And you know, some of the most innovative use of digital in the last few years have come directly from some NFL clubs. You know, And then you're starting to see clubs locally in, uh, in UK, Europe, starting to implement bigger spaces. So as I said before, Tottenham's retail space is fit for purpose. It's future proof. You know, there's some real quirk and interest and heritage in there. There's some big digital, but fundamentally... It can deal with footfall and it can deal with conversion because of the operational framework that's um, that's already been put in place. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, clubs expanding outside of their current store footprint. Obviously, many club shops have been there many years. Um, unless there's been significant development at stadiums, there's, there's probably not been a, a new space created. Um, yeah. other, other than just building a new store or another store or a satellite pop-up, which we see, you know, we see match day containers and we see all manner of kind of ways of capitalizing yeah. on that large foot flow on a match day. Well, what else do you see in terms of gaining additional points of sale through, I guess, maybe digital or, or other methods, Nick? 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's massive. I think, um, there's so much potential, um, around a stadium retail space to put in touch points that can engage and convert the consumer. And I mentioned a couple before, you know, whether it's satellite kiosks that can be, you know, on the far side of a stadium space, you can select the kit, you can select the personalization, you can purchase it, you know, with a, with contactless payment and you can have it um, delivered to the locker at the end of the match and you can just pick it up from the locker and go home or put the shirt on. There's massive potential, I think, with corporate hospitality guests as well. You know, the, the, the amount of time that I, I've been in those spaces and there's minimal opportunity for that high value guest to spend. And I think digital tools in a hospitality corporate space um, or, a, or a suite can really help the club sort of capitalise on the value of that consumer and the, and the footfall in that area of the um, stadium space. And, and how important do you think that physical digital future might be? Um, alongside, we've obviously mentioned the benefit of strong social and, and online offerings. Do you think digital and, and, and so on can kind of um, reinvigorate that physical space, or is it really just a stopgap which slows this process of the physical space becoming redundant in the longer term? Uh, no, I think I think clubs um, are trying to get fans to the stadiums as early as possible, you know, and that helps with congestion. Um, it helps the fan potentially spend more on food and beverage. But if you want to get the fan to the space earlier, the stadium space, it's about creating a space that they want to go to. So, for example, Ashton Gate, Bristol City, I think what they, they do there with the Bristol Bears as well, it's brilliant. It's just such so fan-focused, you know, and the whole space and experience, right the way down to the match day programs, you know, you can scan your phone at it and it plays augmented reality video clips. It's just everything's being considered. So what they do there, and Manchester City are, are good, is that, if they want fans to turn up sooner to maximize, you know, to, to convert them, let's say, or, or to help them have that experience, intrinsic to that is a space, a retail space, or let's say a sort of a dwell space where there's food and beverage and, you know, where it's appealing, it's exciting. And then there's space for the fan to interact with content or uh, exclusive social media banners or frames for their images. I just think that the two elements of physical and digital are just can only get closer. You know, and, and I think that fans are very engaged and they're able to sort of tailor their preferences to, you know, um, how they follow their club, you know, whether it's you know, notifications on their app, match day, non-match day, going to the match, having the best experience. Because it's expensive being a football fan, you know, um, ticketing and merch and food and beverage. So therefore, you want the fan to be able to enjoy it and the club should want, you know, to have a you know, full capacity um, home match every match and capitalize on that unique footfall that they're guaranteed. As I said, you know, retail on the high street isn't guaranteed, you know, that footfall. Stadium retail is, you know, they know, they know they're going to get 40,000 people. Nick, that has been amazing insight. Well, thank you. Good to hear that there is a future for physical retail as a, as a retailer at heart. Yeah. A lot alongside yeah. digital obviously is going to play a massive part and that experiential type of visit is, is becoming more prevalent. But yeah, unfortunately we've, we've run out of time. It's been amazing kind of hearing all the projects that you've worked on, some of the exciting stuff that you see that you're forecasting to come down the track. And I, I, I think you're right. I think we'll definitely see a lot more of those out of club store opportunities to capitalize on, on those huge crowds on match day. Digital is obviously really prevalent. But yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for your time. 
hopefully everybody could take something from that and uh, go away and have a think about their own retail operation. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great to uh, talk about past projects and the, the future of stadium retail. Uh, something I'm really passionate about, you know. So um, thank you for having me and look forward to hearing it when it's uh, this episode goes live. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. I really enjoyed that one. What a great chat from Nick. What great insight into um, some amazing projects that, that he's been part of um, across his varied retail experience. I mean, the Man United one in, in particular, as a Man United fan, being his first big Adidas gig doesn't doesn't get much better than that, I guess. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And it's, it's interesting as you go into these shops and I think as, as amazing as they are, sometimes you kind of just take for granted how amazing they are. But when you hear the work that goes on behind it and you know, all the different stakeholders that are involved to bring together such incredible concepts, you can really appreciate the, the skill of someone like Nick who can bring all this together and, and give them the outcome that everybody that keeps everybody happy, which isn't always easy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that one, having, having nothing manufactured three weeks before go live and opening date, I can imagine uh, there were a few beads of sweat, shall we say, at certain stages. And it sounds like he kept a real professional head on it. And he was probably the only one that knew a lot of the time. Um, so to shoulder that on a project that big with that amount of millions pounds worth of sponsorship from the new brand coming in, fair play. And then the digital stuff as well. I mean, it, it just shows how prominent digital is in terms of the spend and the investment that clubs and brands are making now in terms of physical store space. And, and that seems to be one of the answers to regenerating and rejuvenating physical space because obviously, you know, brick and mortar has been struggling through COVID against online. Online sales have been accelerated and, and what can a traditional store do to, to win back that footfall. It's a genuine um, destination point on people's match days now, isn't it? That, you know, perhaps before they might've gone into the, st- um, the shop a couple of times a season, whereas now, you know, it's almost that FOMO thing that people are missing out on on what clubs might've introduced to their stores next. And yeah, it's great to kind of see how digital's brought that back to life um, while still retaining some of those sort of traditional values that, that make people want to go to the shops in the first place. Yeah, definitely. It's much more about the experience. And, and like you say, that, that fear of, of not seeing something cool, you know, the, the Arsenal work that Nick referred to there about performing skills with Arsenal players in a cage. I mean, you know, you can't get that sat behind a phone screen or sat at home or, or giving the, the shop a swerve on a match day. So yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, definitely seems like digital and physical is, is the way forward, which I guess. Some people might have looked at digital as a potential downfall of physical. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. We, we should give Nick a shout out um, in terms of his his website and and obviously his role. Nick Lodge Onside Brand. It's www.onsidebrand.co.uk. I know there's loads of information on there about what Onside do, you know, what Nick's role within that is and, and some of the projects that they've worked on previously. So please do check it out. I mean, if anybody's listening that wants a professional project lead on, on an upcoming project, whether it's in a few months time or a few years time, I think there's definitely a person that I would be, um, dropping a, a telephone call to by the sounds of that experience. Definitely. If you're looking for a, a full portfolio of stuff, I think that's probably one of the fullest ones you're going to find. So yeah, it certainly would be uh, someone I'd be picking up to the phone to for sure. That's it for this time around. Um, we'll be back shortly with episode five. But if you want to follow us and see what we're doing in the meantime, it's at Sports Merch Pod on all the normal socials or on LinkedIn, where most of our activity is on our LinkedIn page 
That Sports Merch Podcast. That's it for episode four. Thanks for uh, everything, Matt. No problems. Great to catch up again and looking forward to the next one. Yeah, speak soon. Podcast Network. Everyone deserves to enjoy a McRib at least once in their lifetime. Because when you're this saucy and tangy and tasty, a life without one creates a serious case of FOMO. The McRib is back. Don't miss the classic you've been craving. Get a McRib, filet of fish or Big Mac and get another for a dollar or mix and match. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.